Hello and welcome to episode 262 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at the nature of perspective by offering our own perspectives on the latest from Japanese auteur Hirokazu Koreeda, Monster. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well. I'm getting through the Jan Febs. We're pushing through. I maybe I'm not catching up on as many movies as, as I missed as I as I thought I might be during this period of time. But at the same time, I don't feel that bad about it. The list of movies that I feel like I should be catching up on is either a not that long or b movies I'm not that excited about. <laughs> Saltburn being one of them. I mean, at this yeah. point, I have to go watch that movie because everyone's trying to talk to me about it. And you don't have to. No, no, it, it's not a half thing. It's just like. The film is so popular, not even talking about whether it's like people like it or not, but it, the film is so watched in the culture that I feel like I need to go watch it. It's not like Don't Look Up where like everyone watched it. And no one even talked about it. Everyone's watching this movie that I'm friends with and everyone is talking about it. So it feels like something I need to watch just so I can be like, no, actually, I my preconceived notions about this thing were right. Obviously, maybe they won't be, but, um, you know, I just got to. I got to bury that that hatchet. My own Sounds like you need some better friends to me uh, who, who wouldn't put this pressure on you to. They're not putting the pressure on me. I just yourself to that. <laughs> no one's literally no one is telling me to watch the movie. I just feel like I need to watch the movie. OK, well, you should you, you need to watch Return to Soul as well, because uh, that's on the list. Yeah, that's on the list. Um, yeah, I also still have my list that I'm trying to complete before. The best films of 2023 episode, which spoiler alert is going to be our next episode of the podcast. Um, as I've mentioned before, I am not going to to see some of them because I can't. I literally can't see, you know, mm-hmm. like Perfect Days or The Taste of Things or All of Us Strangers or The Zone of Interest before um, we have to do this episode. But um, you know, look forward to hearing from me on those movies sometime. In February, probably. But um, no, I still feel, you know, pretty good. I'm going to have, you know, over 70 movies, I guess, on the the completed list. And I do think I'll be able to get to a couple more in the next week or so before we record the episode. So um, it will it will not be comprehensive when we do the the list, but uh, it never is, I feel like. So um, it will be my best best try that I could possibly put in. And I guess that's all we can ask for. We hold ourselves to too high of a standard, perhaps. Uh, in coming up with these lists but uh i think at the end of the year we always look at our list and be like well i could i could have gone without seeing these movies and i probably should have gone and seen these movies and that's the way it's always going to be so yeah 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 so choices choices were made and some of those choices are regrettable but uh we live and learn or sometimes we don't learn but anyway um with that being said as mentioned our film today is monster by hirokazu koreeda Monster takes a Rashomon-style look at a series of events in the lives of a few characters who are connected by a school in Japan. We begin by meeting Saori, played by Sakura Ando, and her son Minato, played by Soya Kurakawa, a fifth grader who suddenly begins exhibiting strange behaviors, like cutting his own hair and coming home with only one shoe, to the great concern of Saori. Saori suspects that Minato's teacher, Mr. Hori, played by Eita Nagayama, is somehow involved, but when she attempts to raise the issue with the school, she is stymied by the school administration's gaslighting and muted apologies. 
Next, we see the events from the perspective of Mr. Hori, who also witnesses strange behavior from Minato in school, particularly as it pertains to Minato's relationship with a fellow student named Yori, played by Hinata Hiragi, and resolves to address it. Finally, the story shifts one more to Minato's point of view, where truths will be revealed about this relationship, and all of the events we've seen thus far will take full shape. Scott, I've tried to be purposefully vague in this description because I believe Monster is best viewed with little outside knowledge. Did you find the latest from Master Corieta to be a spellbinding morality play about the strange but often powerful connections between children? Or did Corieta's storytelling device leave you grasping for the point amongst the differing points of view? I really liked this movie a lot. I had been... I wouldn't say putting off the film, but other things kept coming up. It's I had to go all the way downtown to the IFC Center to see this movie, which is can be a bit of a trek, depending on how you're you know, how I'm feeling once I'm already at home on a given day. And then I was going to go see it a couple weeks ago, and then I had the opportunity to go see a different film uh, at Lincoln Center for free. And so I did that and kept putting it off and off. But I got there and. Only my second Coriata film after last year's Broker, which we didn't talk about on the podcast, but certainly came up on our year-end episodes and our awards episodes. And really enjoyed that film. think I probably enjoyed this film even more. And part of that is exactly what you were describing during your summary or your primer for our discussion. And that is the construction of the movie, Rashomon style, as you mentioned, the different perspectives. It's Rashomon, of course, is like a little bit different than this, that that is much more of like a, really trying to show you the exact same things happening from multiple different perspectives. And this is really feeding you new and different information as you as you run back through it. But nevertheless, I find that mechanism to be really effective telling this story. I thought the film had a ton on its mind. There's obvious there's the obvious stuff on the forefront around this sort of childhood friendship between two young boys. There's, but then, you know, there's the layer deeper that maybe is not something that we as American viewers would care as much or focus as much on. And that is the stuff about the Japanese school system. I think there's a lot to say about the politics and bureaucracy of the lower school system in Japan or elementary school system, depending on, I don't exactly know what it's called or how it's referred to in Japan. I think the relationship between parents and teachers and administration. I think all those things are really wrapped up what the responsibility adults have to children are in general, even separate from the school system. I think that there's just so much on this film's mind and not to jump straight to the ending, but I also think the ending is a really powerful one. I'll be honest. And I'm sure it's something that we're going to talk about later on. It's yeah, a fascinating film. I mean, solid performances and I'm sure we'll break up and talk about the different segments. I know something that you had mentioned, I saw, I think it was in your letterbox review, but the fact that, you know, there's a couple pieces by Ryuchi Sakamoto in this film, which I believe is, I don't know if it was the last stuff he produced before he died of cancer a little bit less than a year ago, but probably the last thing that's going to be released that he, that he made and especially ending the film with that, with those notes. Um, I mean, yeah, really, really powerful stuff. And yeah, I have nothing but the highest regard and uh, compliments to this movie. It, it seems like one of those movies that I'm going to be thinking about 
you, you know, next year when we're talking about our best of 2024 list, I'm still going to be thinking about Monster. It does feel like that kind of movie. And yeah, I, d- I didn't even know it was Rashomon style when I walked into the theater. I'll, I'll yeah, be honest. Yeah, I didn't either. And really, when when the first segment of the film is ending, I was like, I'm not really sure how it's going to sustain itself for like another hour and 20 minutes or whatever. Like it didn't because the film had moved so so much so far forward. I was like, is there going to be some like really big left turn in this movie about like where this goes? Like, are these kids going to like run away from home and we're going to follow them? Like, like it's going to become some sort of like weird procedural to like find them after they run away or something mm-hmm. like that. Like that's kind of where I thought the film was going. And then obviously it goes back to the start and you get the second perspective and everything sort of the, the construction of the film started to click into place. And yeah, we'll talk about the individual details, but yeah, I was really, I was really enamored by this film and I'm very curious to see over the next couple of weeks as I give it some time to marinate a little bit more than the, you know, 24 plus hours I've had since I watched the movie where it lands and in, in the grand scheme of 2023, because yeah, a very, a very uh, spellbinding film. Yeah, you know, like I was saying, I think it's best not knowing very much about the film going in, because I certainly did not. Um, and yeah, the chief among that, I think, is the the structure, as you mentioned there, the Rashomon style. I, I had no idea that it was going there, but I was very pleased when it did, because I just, I enjoy that way of telling stories in general. And I think it really works in this movie, I mean, you know, uh, the, some of the criticisms from the people who are criticizing the movie um, are mainly about the storytelling structure. But I, I honestly, I, I don't see it. I think the movie, you know, I, I think all of the, the different stories, the different points of view are sort of integral to what the movie is trying to say, maybe about the limited perspective, perhaps, of that adults have on what is sort of going on with with children as well as, you know, um, as you mentioned, Scott, sort of the, the commentary on the Japanese school system a little bit. And like, I don't know, these weird like handlers who were like going around and just like, you know, trying to minimize, you know, any sort of incident that comes up and protect the school's image above all. It's, it, it's very strange. I mean, the scenes that occur early in the movie when the mother character's in salary the principal's is, office. Yeah, yeah. is in the principal's office are very, very odd uh, because, you know, they're just trying to, you know, apologize. They're, they're basically just trying to make, just hope that the, the woman goes away. Hope that she just, you know, will just say, all right, I got my apology and that's the end of it or whatever. But it's um, the, the yeah. non-apology apology. Yeah. It's like, oh, we understand that is your opinion, you know, or whatever. It's like what they keep saying. And like, we respect that. But like what they're not saying is we don't agree with you. You know, we don't think that anything wrong happened here. Um, and of course, in the construction but, of the film, as a viewer, at least for myself, like I'm totally biased towards taking the mother's perspective. Side, yeah, exactly. And obviously, not not to then like rebut her perspective, the future segments of the film reveal more detail about what's going on. And as as things almost always are in all situations, it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the great things about a movie like this, a Rashomon style movie um, is that it can really, you know, 
surprise you in those ways when it when we, you find out sort of what's really been going on the whole time and peel back the the layers. Um, and obviously that starts to happen when we get into the Mr. Corey storyline, the second storyline. But um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the movie, Scott. I just think Corey Ada is just right in my wheelhouse. I, I haven't seen, you know, some of his most famous movies yet, like uh, Afterlife or, or Shoplifters. Uh, Shoplifters are probably yeah. his two most famous. But between After the Storm, uh, Broker, and now this movie, as well as the series that he did for Netflix this year, um, Cooking for the Mako House, the Mac and I, um, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm all in on sort of his like gentle, like humanism that he has in all of his films. Like he has such a light touch with the way that he tells these stories. And in the case of both Broker and this, it's, you know, deeply emotional stories in a lot of ways, touching on really complex ideas. Um, but, you know, he does so again with such a light um, touch. The movies don't feel easy to or don't feel hard to watch and you know it just feels like he really gets beneath the surface with his characters like he's so um good at character work um and you know that's the case with all of the characters here i mean the the relationship but he, he didn't he didn't write this movie though unlike broker well uh, yeah films. sure but he, he yeah. direction wise you know i think he, he does gravitate towards a particular type of story mm -hmm. and um you know he knows how to to bring out those details and everything but uh, it's more little because he hasn't i don't think he's he's made a film since his very first film that he hasn't written so it's almost notable in that sense that to your point like he's found like he's clearly someone who's accustomed to writing and directing the projects he works on the story was so compelling that he accepted and was okay with not not being the screenwriter on the film like he accepted it for what it was so i think that even speaks more volumes to what you're saying too right yeah no it, it whether he wrote it or not it sort of lines up with the the types of ideas that he's interested in exploring and has explored in the past in his other movies but um yeah no i think once you get to the third act like you mentioned like it, it really does like broker was one of the mo most moving movies of last year for me and i think this movie gets there too especially in that third act when we really find out what is going on between the two boys um and between yori and uh, minato yeah there being yori and mr hori was very confusing but um <laughs> we got through it but um but anyway, um, yeah, no, I, I think it's a beautiful film. I think, you know, again, the, the the gentle, you know, nature of it, the emotionality um, and the types of ideas it's interested in exploring. I think it, you know, the structure just slowly sort of coaxes everything out in a way that really worked for me. And I do like introducing the adults' perspectives into all this because, I, I again, I think there is something to be said there about sort of the... Um, the the perspective that these adults have on everything um they're not that they, they're coming at it with their own sort of personal biases and you know sort of making jumping to conclusions if you will perhaps because um i don't know they don't believe that children are are capable of sort of feeling the complex emotions that we we soon learn that these children are in fact feeling um towards each other and particularly Minato and just sort of everything that's weighing on him as as he is developing this friendship or perhaps something more with Yori um, and sort of the the influence of his father and you know just the traditional notions of masculinity and everything 
and how that's affecting him. Um, the adults probably not giving him enough credit there. Um, and I think that's, you know, a big idea that the movie is, is getting at. Uh, but I think all four of the major characters here are sort of beautifully drawn. Um, and I was just really fascinated to see where the story went. Um, and, and I just love these sort of movies that are just really interested in exploring like the, the nature of humanity and, and our relationships in particular. I think Broker was one of those movies. And, you know, again, he, he is like he does these found family sort of things, too, which this isn't exactly that. But he takes a small ensemble of people here and just really, you know, digs in deep. Um, that's kind of something that he's he's really good at doing. You know, he, again, even if he didn't write the movie, you know, this particular movie, he he obviously took it in that direction, I think. And, and chose this particular story to tell. So, um, yeah, loved the movie. I'm all in the bag for Corriata now. I think, you know, last year I picked like a couple of filmmakers that I wanted to try to just sort of get through their filmography. Um, I did like Kelly Reichert and Whit Stillman, and I didn't quite, I almost got to the end on both of them, but um, I think Corriata is going to be on the list for me this year because, um, you know, I haven't, like I said, I haven't even seen necessarily some of his most acclaimed works but i haven't i haven't seen anything that i haven't loved thus far um so it's quite prolific i mean this guy pumps out yeah know, I mean, a movie every year. year almost two movies every three years like he just he i mean he's made since like 2004 i mean he's made probably close to 15 movies so yeah it's it thir yeah 13 movies since 2004 you know it's almost a movie you know, every year. And he did this Netflix series as well. Uh, and he's done another mini series as well in that time called Going Going My Home. I don't know anything about it, but it's yeah. another mini like TV mini series, you know, a la the Mac and I that you were talking about. Yeah. So Steven Soderbergh esque, I guess, but you know, he he's pumping out things of, of great quality. And so sure. I, you know, I'm all about it. But Scott, let's get into a little bit a little bit more. And I think, you know, sort of the maybe the way to talk about this is by going through the different pieces of the movie. Um, and starting out with this first story, which we sort of have alluded to a little bit here. This involves Minato's mother, Saori, and um, her sort of investigation into what is going on when her son starts exhibiting these strange behaviors and how it forces her to confront um, the Japanese school system and, you know, try, try and understand exactly what her son is, is going through, um, but being sort of stymied by the, like I said, the administrations want, wanting to protect the school's name above all, not really interested in what the truth is here, so to speak, or what is right or wrong about what went on. Scott, how did you feel about um, this segment and, you know, what exactly it contributed to the overall, you know, purpose and ideas of the movie? Yeah, well, I think in any case, in any time where you're watching a film that's like this, that then, you know, revisits the same events from different perspectives, you're always going to feel very differently about it after you finish the movie than while you're watching it, which is certainly the case for how I feel about the the first segment. In terms of its contribution to the overall film, you, you were sort of alluding to this a little bit earlier, but it's it is really good to have this segment sort of set the bar at one end, right? And in, in some ways for probably the vast majority 
of the audience for this movie, the most relatable perspective is going to be the moms, right? Like like adults watching this movie, even if you don't have children, you can probably understand the protectiveness you you would have towards, um, you know, this, you know, this sort of innocent and not defenseless, but vulnerable, uh, this, this child of a vulnerable age. I think that's all very relatable. And so the defensiveness that Sauri brings to her, you know, almost her campaign against the school as she witnesses the, you know, misbehavior, the sort of the spiraling behavior of Minato. And so I think that <clears throat> it's the best perspective to start from because it, as a viewer, it gets, it sort of really sucks me in. And as the viewer, you like, you want to get to the truth. Like we're not seeing anything that's happening at the school from this perspective. So there's a lot of mystery involved with that as well. And so we naturally, we see how Minato is behaving at home and the strange behavior, like jumping out of the car, et cetera, like all this stuff that's happening, it does create this great veil of mystery that then sets up, you know, the other two segments and, and a lot of their contributions overall. But I think salary is like a deeply, um, you know, relatable and like character you, you feel, a lot, I think I would, I felt a lot of empathy for in her situation. Um, Nevertheless, like by the time you get past, you know, and you, and you finish the film, you realize that, and this is where the complexity starts to, to weed things in that, that you have been not misled, but obviously information has been withheld in the same way that it would if you were that parent in real life, right? It's not Sowery's fault. It's not anyone's fault. But we gain information that Sowery doesn't have, or we understand the, the, the real truth of a matter and understand that, yes, Minato is acting out in his behavior and that is cause for concern. And it seems like that concern is placed firmly at the feet of uh, Mr. Uh, is it Hori or Yori? I get the mixed up. Is it Hori? Which one's Hori? Hori is the teacher. Is the yeah. teacher yes. Um, firmly at the feet of Mr. Hori. But yeah, when you get into those other segments and we can talk about those in a minute when we get to them, like the complexity of that situation, like Mr. Hori's strange behavior in the eyes of the mother is like, it's so bizarre, right? Like watching those scenes where he's apologizing is so bizarre. And from our view and just like Sauri, like you're left with thinking like something is like really wrong with this guy. Like what is going yeah. on here? And obviously your perspective on that evolves greatly with the second segment. And I find that when you then look back on the first segment, it's very you know, it enriches that experience more. And you understand that all those things that Sauri is feeling obviously makes sense, super valid, but you also begin to, to process and contemplate the, the flaws of a, what she's doing and also, you know, b the experiences she's going through trying to, you know, get justice for her son from her perspective, right? Like obviously the situation is, is very complex and is not black and white as we learn. But the struggle that she's facing against this administration, this bureaucracy feels like a big, you know, barrier to, you know, the sort of catharsis that maybe she and I'm sure she believes Minato is like needs. And yeah, it's an interesting setup for the rest of the film. Yeah, the setup actually reminded me a little bit of a, a, a film we talked about a few years ago, Scott. I don't know if we did a full review of it on the podcast, 
but a movie that we both really enjoyed from 2019. I don't know if you know which movie I'm thinking of, but Loose um, mm. actually was a little bit, I, I was reminded a little bit of it during the first couple of segments of the movie because I've, you know, it, it, it deals with sort of this student teacher relationship that is constantly shifting, like who is in the right, who is in the wrong. And it's really sort of trying to examine where everyone is coming from, like, you know, in, in their own particular stories and, and how they are approaching this incident with, you know, di different life experiences, essentially. And uh, I think that's so it, it reminded me of that a little bit in the beginning. Obviously, I think it goes to a different place, um, but I think it, it shares some of the, the strengths of that movie, which is sort of constantly shifting how you feel about the characters, right? And, um, you know, like you say, it seems to set up something that is very black and white in the beginning. There's this central question that, you know, evokes the title of like, who is the monster, right? The word monster gets thrown around multiple times in the movie. Um, when we get to the second segment, we see like the the handler guys i don't even really know what their titles are but this the school official guys who are sort of telling mr hori oh you know you got to be careful of the parents the parents are monsters nowadays um and so it sort of sets up you know this idea of the monster from the beginning uh because minato is sort of referring to himself as a monster um saying you know that he has a pig's brain instead of a a, a human brain um, and, and interestingly enough, him, he's saying that his teacher told him that, which is right. He's saying that Mr. Hori told him not to get ahead of ourselves, but it's not something that we ever witness Mr. Hori saying during his segment. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we learn where the source of that comes from as well. But yeah, no, I, I don't think that we're meant to believe that that actually happened. Um, no, obviously, we, we do find out where it comes from. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so it, it sets things up, I think, like, oh, well, this is a very simple answer, right? The monster is sort of this school system that is covering up, like, abuse of um, students and everything and mm -hmm. just trying to brush it under the table, make it go away. And this strange figure of the principal, who I think if I had to, you know, if, if there's a weaker portion of the movie, I think the movie does try to go a little deeper on this principal character and i felt like where it goes there didn't fully fit with the rest of the the story to me but um she has her own sort of traumatic event that has happened to her um and there's a question of who is responsible right um in with respect to this event and so um, she's bringing that in there and we're only getting it's a single set we're getting a single side um sort of at, at this point in the movie and um and so i think it's effective right because i think Corieta wants to just sort of have your mind fixated in one place and then you know to totally turn that on its head when we get to part two and then again when we get to to part three um and i think that works because it's not just like a a trick or a gimmick right that he's just trying to like throw twists at you like it's a thriller but he's actually interested in sort of exploring why all of these characters are seeing the events the way that they do right like it is exploring the nature of perspective it is not just giving us multiple perspectives for this the sake of a gimmick again for the sake of having these gotcha moments um which i think again was one of the major critiques i was seeing in the movie is like oh well this this whole whole thing is just sort of kitschy and it's just trying to like 
throw in twists and stuff where it's not really needed. Uh, but I didn't feel that way. I'm guessing you didn't really feel that way either, Scott. Yeah, I didn't really feel that way. I mean, obviously, the film is setting you up for a you could call it a twist, I suppose. But again, I don't know if it's really trying to hide the eight ball. It's showing you it's very narrowly showing you the mother's perspective. And of course, like, I don't know if it's a twist. It's a twist insofar as when you gain more information about a situation, you learn more about what's going on. And sure, is that a twist? I I guess, yes. But like fundamentally it is, but it doesn't feel kitschy or contrived when, especially when it, it's coming with a, a richness of character depth and development and evolution that this film is giving you uh, pretty much across the board, including Mr. Horry, right? Like that's someone who he's sort of in, the, we already talked about it. He's sort of set up in this first act as a monster, right? Like one of many monsters probably, right? As this as this teacher who's abusive and doesn't know how to properly teach children and and is mean towards them, you know, specifically Minato obviously. But in the second act, like does he have clearly he he has his own issues and he's not this morally flawless character, but you begin to understand very quickly that like what like why he was behaving so strangely in these rooms because he's being forced into these situations where he doesn't feel like he's done anything wrong maybe some some accident or some something unintentional happened between the two of them but the extent to which he's being blamed for things happening by the mother by Minato even like that is not something that we are being shown on the screen at the very least from his perspective and that is something that Again, it's a it is a twist, but it's this notion where if you immediately like things make sense in a way that it doesn't feel like, oh, I've been duped or oh, I've been set up it's, in some way for this. It's making you empathize with every single person, right? Exactly. Because I mean, that's like, the miracle of the film, right? Like, yeah, even the principal who I would say I wouldn't disagree with the way you describe the character. I, may, I think I maybe like that character a little bit more. And maybe we can get into that some in the third act when we when you learn a little bit more about her character, but even with the principal, I think that you're, you're made to, again, she's acting strangely. You don't fully understand what's going on. And I think that is where a lot of the bureaucracy and the, and the politics of the school system and that theme come into play. But I think even her, like even her, you are left at least me feel like feeling empathy for this person not just for the death of her grandchild, which is ostensibly the sort of tragedy in her life, but I think for other reasons as well. And I think that's like one of the magical, like one of the magical aspects of this movie is that it makes you feel for every character, especially after the first, you know, 30, 40 minutes where you're not really sure how, in how much empathy you're going to be feeling for the full cast of people here. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think, you know, again, that's another reason that the storytelling gimmick that isn't a gimmick you know but it, it works the storytelling device yeah the, the, um, the device yeah yeah because it's putting you in everyone's shoes and you know forcing you to see things their way and um their way makes sense in, in the case of of everyone who we're we're you know we're examining so mm -hmm. um yeah and and you know sort of moving forward we are we've already gotten into it a little bit but we then get into 
Mr. Hori's storyline. And, you know, we sort of learn what exactly is going on with him. Um, the fact that um, he, you know, he tells the uh, salary that, that her son Minato is a bully, um, but he is not obviously seeing the full perspective on it either. He, he walks in on this scene of, um, of, of Yori or of uh, Minato throwing every student's backpacks around, throwing all of their stuff in the tables and just sort of, you know, um, attacking the other students in his own way. And while he is trying to get Minato to stop, he inadvertently injures him, um, which, you know, leads sort of to the beginning of, of everything. Um, and then, you know, is immediately sort of told by these school administrators that he needs to just apologize and, um, you know, just move on from it, not, not defend himself, essentially, even though he didn't really do anything wrong. And actually, you know, again, what, what we see is that this guy actually is probably a very good teacher, it seems. Um, he really seems to care for the students and, like, understand what they need. Um, but he ends up sort of having his life torn apart uh, because of, you know, this I mean, he becomes he becomes a scapegoat because yeah. of the crusade of salary. I mean, plainly put, like... Which... Yeah, again, we understand her crusade. I think, again, the, the idea is that the real villain is the system, which would allow his life to be ruined because of all this. But, um, yeah, it, I mean, nothing is that simple in the movie. And I think we're talking about the the idea of the monster, right? Which, again, going back to the title. I, I do wish maybe it could have been carried through slightly more in the third act because I feel like they didn't talk about it as much in the third act. But I think the idea is sort of that the mo monster is sort of this word that is being used to um, to to put put people in a box when the reality is we don't really know exactly what's going on with them. It's our it's an easy way for us to just sort of compartmentalize and say, oh well, you know. Mr. Hori is a monster. He's an abusive monster, right? Like it's it's the way that we uh, understand things to be when we see the story from that one perspective. Or oh, hey, you know, uh, Minato is just the bully, right? But um, there's so much more to to all of these people. But what did you think about the second storyline and where it goes, Scott? Yeah, I, I mean, I started I started to talk about it a little bit, and I do think that it carries through in terms of the the monster element maybe it's not so explicit but i think a lot of what this film is trying to do and this will become i think this becomes even clearer in the third act it, it does get less explicit as it goes on it's less on the nose there are of course references of the you know very explicit monster part but i think what you realize is that you know if if, if act one is about mr hori being a monster act two is about as you said the system the school system whatever it might be being the monster I think act three, the aperture continues to expand even wider as you get into act three and understand that there's an even there's there's something even bigger than the school system that is a monster going on here. And we can talk about that in a second. But I like the development here. I, you know, I was I so I, I can see some people not appreciating the second segment as much as others. Like, I think Mr. Hori taking his perspective, it's necessary as a way to 
set up the final segment of the film for you to get the full reveal of everything, right? Like if it, if it was just two parts and it just dumped you with all this information for the going from the mom's perspective to Minato's perspective, it wouldn't, it would, it would be very jarring. I think that would probably feel like some big twisty part, like almost like conceit in the movie, but there's this sort of interstitial piece, right? That serves both as a character explanation for Mr. Hori, which I personally really enjoyed quite a bit. But the second purpose is to bridge, um, you know, to lay the groundwork for the further reveals that you'll receive in the third act of the movie. And I think your mileage is going to vary on the second act, depending on how much you're you're enjoying or how much you're you're responding to the Mr. Hori story. I think we've already started to talk about how the sort of the school system and him being a bit of a scapegoat and his role navigating his you know his specific role as a teacher right that is all very interesting to me but i don't know if that will necessarily be as interesting or as compelling to everyone who watches this movie but the notion that he's basically being made to be a scapegoat that he's deeply cares about his students and from his perspective minato is the person who is acting out who is treating um, Yori, the other student, very poorly for presumably no reason. Like you see all of why he thinks what he does about Minato, providing context to why he's not taking the apology so seriously when he's you know back from Act One and bridges it bridges it forward. I think that you what you said about the school system being the monster here and how you know, they're going to tell you that the parents are monsters for doing this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all that works really well for me. And I think that the performance by, uh, is it? Yeah. It's Nagayama is, I think it's it sort of really, it, it is permitted to, to enter a, a new dimension in the second act, because obviously it's very one dimensional, very almost cartoonish in the first act. And then the fact that you get to like sort of, you know, take, you know, open, you know, pop open the hood and see what's actually going on in that performance is really cool. I think his like whole, per like melding his personal life and just making him in general, like not like still not a perfect person is so critical to making the character believable, right? Like, you know, he has this weird, like he, whether it's like uh, actually a problem or whether it's just a taboo, like the fact that he is, you know, dating this person from the hostess bar or whatever, if she does work. I mean, I assume she works there. Everyone made it sound like she works there. Yeah. At the seems like bar. So it seems that way. You know, there's that fact. And, but even, know. even that detail, right? Like, again, it's, it's used against him as like, oh, again, he's a monster, right? He's like hanging out at the, the hostess bar. He's just some creep or whatever. But the reality is more complex, right? That he is, he's dating a woman from there, but they have a, like a very, you know, what seems to be normal relationship, if you will. It's not something unseemly or creepy, like he's going there to, you know, ogle people or whatever. Yeah. And it, I just think that it's so important to sort of like we learned that Sowry is like not this perfect person either because of how, you know, maybe it's understandable, but she's taking this thing so far with the school system. Right. And she's not totally like we learned that she is not totally in the right about what she's doing. Um, from her perspective, we understand why she's doing it, everything. It seems it makes sense to us, but we know that she's not right. In the same way, Mr. Horry, as much as he's trying to do the right thing as a teacher, be a good teacher, he's not always doing the right thing either. He has 
you know, this relationship with the hostess, he's, you know, there's these moments, there's these flashes, these moments where the pressure of the situation he's in is getting to him and he's not treating, you know, his girlfriend well, like when she's trying to leave the apartment, you know, again, it's nothing major. It's just these small things here and there that, that sort of mark him as like a human, right? As a real person. And, you know, anyone under that kind of pressure would be feeling the strain. And my only sort of, and that's sort of how I feel. And I, and I like it. I really enjoyed the middle part of the movie for that reason. And I, I like all those elements. My question for you, Scott, is what did the goldfish with swim bladder mean? What did that mean to you? Yeah. I, what I metaphor is I that? Got, I got nothing on that one. Uh, honestly, I had forgotten about that until you just brought it up right now. They, it comes up so many times, like in that act, like it's like three or four different times. It, gets, it does. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's that's got to work. through. I, it. I guess I, I was yeah fixating on other motifs in the movie or something. But um, sure, that one's a bit of a mystery to me. But um, yeah, no, I think the second second act works for sure. Um, and I I uh, enjoyed learning more about this character and the complexity to him. I think it has to be there for the movie to work. And then finally, we move into the third act where. Um, we sort of learn the full picture. We learn that, in fact, um, the two boys, um, Minato and Yori, are close friends, perhaps more than that. We learn that Yori is picked on often because he is a feminine, quite, poss yeah. quite possibly, you know, gay. Um, he has an abusive father. He has an alcoholic father who is the one who originates this idea about the pig brain that he, he tells that to his, his son, but which um, is probably also all related back to the bullying as well, probably because of his yeah. effeminate tendencies and the suspicion or fear Absolutely. that his father might have of him being gay, etc. Absolutely. Um, and Minato is sort of caught in this place of, he feels himself drawn to the Yori character. He feels a connection there with them that he doesn't feel with other people, but also he is stuck in this. Um, he's afraid to be friends with him. He's afraid to be seen. He's, as he's afraid because of the others, the, the kids at the school the yeah. who are bullying. And also you get the sense he's afraid because of his father who has passed away and perhaps, you know, sort of also adheres to these traditional ideas of masculinity that, yeah. Yori's father seems to have as well. So, which is a great callback these... to the first, the first act of the film. The first second, doesn't, yeah. yeah, when he doesn't want his mother to listen to what he says to at his father's. Uh, it's not memorial, but it's like a you know a shrine and, and an in home shrine. It's yeah. very yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so eventually, you know, they form this connection. You know, although at times Minato is sort of. Um, he is joining in on the bullying, if you will, because um, he is trying not to be seen as befriending Yori. But ultimately, they do become friends. They hide out together during the storm, which, uh, you know, is sort of a, a central event in the movie um, when Minato goes missing. Um, and the end of the movie is sort of them running away. I mean, not not running away we don't exactly know where they're running to i guess but they are together the sunlight is out and there's a sort of freedom about the way that they are running uh, like perhaps they have embraced this connection between the two of them um and wherever it may lead 
Um, what did you think, Scott, about the final segment of the movie and all that it reveals about the characters and particularly these two characters of the, the two young boys um, and what it all says about this idea of the monster? Yeah, everything comes home to roost in the third act. I mean, I think it, it is a real the third act is, frankly, it's a real home run for me, I think. In this kind of movie, the obvious always, and this is true for most movies as well, but the final act is always so important in this kind of movie. What the sort of foot when you when you gain the full perspective, when the aperture fully widens and you see everything, does it all make sense? Does it all work? And it does, it absolutely does for me. I think the story of their you know, troubled beginning of their friendship because of all these things that you've described because of the anxiety of Minato and the fear of being bullied like Yori is being bullied. His his fear and his lack of understanding of the of his own emotions that he might be feeling for Yori. I think that is so deftly navigated in the third act of the film. And it, again, it puts it sort of puts all that strange behavior into perspective you know, I didn't mention this before, but in the first act of the film, I again, I didn't really know what was going on in the movie. I didn't really know what the film was about. I was like, is this going to take some like weird horror film turn where something? <laughs> but like, honestly, I was kind of I was yeah, kind of wondering yeah. that it's like it's not really who Corey is as a director. So I would I would have been surprised. But it, it was sort of crossing my mind that this is some some sort of like horror type movie. And to then get to the third segment of this film and to understand exactly everything that's going on, it's like, oh, I mean, this is a horror film to some extent, right? Like in like the literal word, like what is happening to Minato is is a nightmare, is a horror. What he's having to go through, what he's having to process by himself, right? Like his mother is and his teacher and the like the, the adults who are closest to him do not fully see him or understand him. And that's not that's not a condemnation of adults. It's just a, it's a reality yeah. of the situations. Right. And he, as you know, a nine or 10 year old boy, of course, isn't going to be able to process all of those really complex emotions on his own and the blossoming friendship. And I would go so far as not even maybe, but like definitely romance, like romantic feelings and romance involved between the two boys, I think is really, is really, I mean, heart like it really tugs at your heartstrings i think like you feel that these boys like they're young right they don't they have their whole lives in front of them right and so this is not like the the be all and end all of their humanity but the journey that they're going through together and the things that they're learning about themselves together or mainly maybe minato i don't think we have as much interiority onto yori but uh, onto minato is really powerful and when it comes to the end of the movie where he's you know minato is going out in the middle of the storm and and breaking into yori's house and um you know finds that his like father has is probably still out drunk at a bar i mean we see him at the end of the film it's like stumbling out of a bar or what yeah. during the storm or whatever and that you know yori's in the bathtub he has bruises all over his body from the from the beating that his father must have given him and you know, they, they abscond to their hideaway, this this rail car that they found at the end of a culvert tunnel, like a bridge tunnel. And, you know, Scott, like, I don't I don't know if you had more you wanted to say about the third act of the movie, but just to go all the way to the end of the film, I think a pretty strong re like it, to me, it seemed pretty strong at the end of the film that they died in the rail car. Yeah. 
And, you know, there's all this talk in different segments of the film about what will I be when I'm reborn, this, uh, this very spiritual notion of mm -hmm. what will happen. And he's uh, like the, you know, Minato is worried that he's going to be reborn as like some bug or some animal or whatever. And the end of the film to me reads that he's been reborn as someone who accepts what he like accepts himself who is free right? who yeah. he is who is free to um be who he wants to be and not worry about the monster and this is to, to tie it all back together uh where i was going when i was talking about originally the that society and society's expectations uh cultural norms like that is the monster the biggest yeah. like the the big monster at the end of the day and i think those things all feed down right like society drives the school like administration and the system which drives all these you know the teachers to behave a certain way and it, to me that's that's where the final read of the film comes from and these two these two boys who have died tragically um in the storm uh you know what does the film have to say about that is that well maybe now that they're actually free and i think that's a really tough read i think that's a really tough emotional read of the film but that's right now 24 hours out of seeing this movie that's that's where i've landed yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's a reasonable interpretation. Again, when I'm talking about them having this freedom. And of course, yeah, you're right to bring up the idea of being reborn, which is established very early on. Yeah, I think you can read it as, as you said, as they have, they've died and they found the, the freedom in, in that and they've been reborn in that way. You know, I, I think you may, you, you could probably also just read it that they're, they're, they survive, but they've accepted, you know, now the reality of um, how they're feeling and they're just going to embrace, embrace that going forward. Um, I think, you know, the most important thing is, like you said, that they had this freedom at the end and that um, it seems I just think like it's really, the, it's really hard oh, to explain the, the end of the second segment of the film and the end of the third segment of the film as being in the same reality yeah is, is what is tough for me yeah i think you may be right I, it it makes me want to revisit it but i did i mean i did have that thought in the moment too when i was watching it of like uh yeah it seems like you could interpret this as sort of a the afterlife a little bit at the end but um yeah no i think it all comes together beautifully again just the the sort of understated way that this friendship forms and the dialogue between the two of them and um you know the two the two child actors i think are wonderful um in their connection with each other and just again sort of the the way that it helps us empathize with minato even though he is you know bullying yori and whatnot at times um we we feel for him because um he has so many competing things going on in his mind that as you say he's he's forced to deal with on his own because he doesn't have that authority figure who understands exactly what he's going through um and you know i, I don't think that's just uh he's trying to make a commentary just about these characters but perhaps about um adults and uh, parents and children or teachers and children um in general just sort of the the limitations perhaps that um that they have on the way that they view children, um, I think um, is an interesting, one of, one of the many interesting ideas that's sort of at work here and, um, and comes to a head in the end um, that it has, you know, maybe in a tragic way, as you say, but 
also in a, in a hopeful way, at least for the, the children. Um, so it's a beautiful ending. And as you said, the Sakamoto piece that is yeah. sort of underscoring the running at the end was really moving. I mean, one of the best, you know, sort of music moments of the year, one of the best really moments of the year in, in movies, I think an image that's really going to stay with me and a film that's really going to stay with me for sure. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's not one that you, you know, you can just walk away from. And I think Broker was that same way too. I, I think that's just the kind of movie that Corrieta makes. And I'm excited to explore more of what he's got. Scott, your favorite scene or moment from Monster? Yeah, it, it's the last scene for me. It, maybe it's easy and cheap. You were just saying it too, that it's one of the best moments in the movie. One of the best moments maybe all year. And I don't really have any, any thing to say to the contrary to that that sa the sakamoto piece it really really sort of adds that extra you know 50 percent. i was gonna say 10 percent, but it feels like even more than that extra 50 percent to that moment with the piano score and yeah it was beautiful it was a beautiful scene it's packed with so much obviously from what i was just talking about like it really stirs up a lot of emotions, both with the score, but also with what you're witnessing on screen as well. And it's a perfect culmination for the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard for me to to not say the ending, I guess. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I really think that sort of all the scenes in the third act, if you will, uh, between the two boys are are really quite moving and um, the the scene right before that when they're sort of just finally come to an understanding about each, of uh, of what they feel for each other and sort of Minato being shaken a little bit by acknowledging by realizing exactly what he's feeling I think uh, is a is, it's it's beautiful to watch um, I don't know how to put it other than that but I would say just sort of collection of scenes there in the third act just really build to a really powerful crescendo as you've said uh, let's put a score on it. Out of 10, what do you give Monster? Yeah, I'm giving it a 9.0. A uh, really, really strong film. Could potentially see it up, see it going up higher as I reflect on it more. And a strong, strong, strong film. Yeah, I give it an 8.8. .8. It's definitely one of the strongest movies this year. I definitely think it will probably be referenced in some capacity on our next episode on Best Films of 2023. I definitely encourage people to check it out because... You know, it's certainly a more under the radar movie, um, but it's it's absolutely worth seeking out and worth your time. So monster. All right, Scott, we are going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we have some regular news announcements. We're taking a little bit of a break from the award season grind. We're going to be talking about a couple of big movie announcements that we've had over the past couple of weeks. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as I mentioned before, we have just a couple of news items to hit before we conclude here. We've been talking a lot about awards season uh, over the past few weeks. And of course, 
the the big biggest part of award season is still to come. The Oscar nominations are going to be released tomorrow, as of the time that we are recording this. Um, but with no real news, no no new updates in the world of the awards since the last time that we uh, recorded, uh, we did want to catch up with some of the news that we missed in that time, including some big movie announcements. I wanted to mention uh, first of all this. A new film from director Jason Reitman, which is going to be about the origin story of Saturday Night Live. Um, of course, uh, Jason Reitman, son of the late Ivan Reitman, you know, uh, a sort of comedy legend in his own right, uh, director of movies like Ghostbusters and films like that. Um, and he is taking on, you know, this, uh, this story about, you know, one of the um, seminal works of comedy of the modern era, Saturday Night Live, uh, but we're going to get the origin story. And uh, this film has been cast with some very exciting young actors. Gabriel LaBelle, uh, who, of course, played Sammy in The Fablemans, uh, is going to be starring in the film as Lorne Michaels, um, of course, the creator of Saturday Night Live. Um, Cooper Hoffman, uh, who, uh, of course, uh, rose to stardom with uh, Licorice Pizza a couple of years ago, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, he's going to play Dick Ebersole, who was the producer, you know, legendary sort of producer for NBC, um, and who was intimately involved with, with getting SNL off the ground. And then Rachel Sennett, of course, you know, rising star as well uh, from bottoms this year previously shiva baby and bodies 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 she is going to play rosie schuster who was one of the first writers of snl who was actually married to lauren michaels for uh, several years which is interesting because gabriel labelle is 21 and rachel senate is 28 so interesting sort of pairing there i guess i don't know if they're going to get into the romantic angle of uh, of that relationship but um Anyway, that uh, just stuck out to me when I was reading this casting news. But yeah, Scott, you know, this is going to be a, a big movie. The movie is going to be called SNL uh, 1975. Um, so it's based on real accounts. Jason Reitman, again, directing and co-writing the film. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily the world's biggest Jason Reitman fan. You know, he, he sort of uh, his breakthrough film was Juno, which I do love, but since then, I think he's been a little bit hit or miss, you know, especially recently. I think he's made movies that just don't exist. Um, he made that movie, The Front Runner with Hugh Jackman. Of course, he made uh, the Ghostbusters, at least one of them. I, I don't know if he directed both of the, the ones that have been released now, the, but the, the new spin on Ghostbusters, which I've not seen. Or has it's, there only been one? Well, it's well liked. Well, Frozen Empire is not out yet. But he's not directing. Okay, right. But he, he's, but he's not, not. He's not directing that one. But he did direct Ghostbusters Afterlife. But yeah, he did, which yeah. was which, which was well liked. I don't know if it reviewed well. Yeah. I'm not really a. I'm not locked in on the Ghostbusters franchise, so have no. Yeah. Have no real say, but it seemed like I mean it did well enough to spawn a sequel. So. Right, but you know, again, as much as I've been hit or miss on him, I, I do think that um, you know maybe this is something that he could find. Um, find his niche in because you know he grew up around comedy uh probably grew up around some of the people who were involved with saturday night live just from being the son of ivan reitman so uh, it's going to be a personal story to him i would imagine and he's got a great cast i mean i've i've loved the work of all three of those cast members that i mentioned like you know if you're if you're trying to cast exciting young actors in your movies 
Um, I can hardly think of three better names to do that than than the three that I just read off. Scott, your thoughts on this? Yeah. I, I mean, look, have I been a big fan of his previous two movies between Ghostbusters Afterlife and a film I haven't seen in The Front Runner, which is up there with The Nest in a film that I'm not sure whether I have seen. I need to go actually look on Letterboxd. <laughs> I don't to see think you've I seen The Front Runner again. Yeah, I don't. I'm it not doesn't sure. Exist, like I said, I might have exist. seen it. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. I might have seen it. But I was a huge fan of Tully, uh, which was his film, his other film in 2018. And you know, Up in the Air, another another good film. And then you said Juno. Thank you for smoking. Those are movies that are much more, or much less anonymous. I think it's fair to say. Tully, maybe not, but I was a big fan of that movie. And the cast, great. I mean, Gabriel Lavelle, awesome in The Fablemans. 100%, yeah. let's go. And Rachel Sennett, curious if she can do a dramatic role. If this is going to be, like, whether this is going to skew more drama or more comedy, I guess maybe is a question, probably a little bit of both. At the end of the day, I mean, if you're going to cast Rachel Simmons, there's probably going to be some comedy in it. So I can see this taking like a Adam McKay, Craig Gillespie type tone to telling the story. That's just kind of the the vibe I get, perhaps. But um, that's not which, really which that's not really Reitman's tone, though. Well, I think yeah, I think he has blended comedy and drama a lot. Yeah, maybe not the flashiness of like yeah, the, yeah. Adam I was McKay thinking more the flashiness. Uh, yeah. yeah, but like you know, so, stuff like Up in the Air and Young Adult and movies like that. Those are those are definitely sort of proper and thank comedy dramas, too. I guess. Yeah, and thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. No, you know the the vibe of the comedy drama, a hundred percent. The more yeah. like I'm going to now explain to you and like a sort of pop sensibility. Or whatever. I mean, it's funny because I it's like popular, Craig Gillespie a lot. Yeah. I don't know if I like Adam McKay as much, but I uh, look. I, I'm. It's it's an intriguing prospect. I work for NBC, so cool that a film is being made about history. I mean, obviously, if this film is not timed to be coming out around the time the SNL 50th anniversary is happening next spring or next winter, I can't remember if it's exactly which month it is, but it's some time between February and April next year. If the film is not releasing around that window, seems like a real big missed opportunity. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good shout. I guess I hadn't really thought about the fact that that was coming up, but um, you raise a good point. I think yeah. um, they'll probably be targeting that. Scott, speaking of other new film announcements, I know you wanted to discuss a collaboration between a director and actor who have worked together before, certainly, um, and a who times. are now sort of more than a foraging times. foraging into new waters together. Tell us more about this new project. Yeah, you say director and actor. I say director and director. Director um, and director, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, a little bit tongue-in-cheek there, although, of course... One of you know Michael B. Jordan has now directed uh, directed a film, a film which was pretty good. You know, not going to be in my top ten. We I doubt we will be talking about Creed three in a couple weeks' time when we're no. doing our top ten films of twenty twenty three. But a film that I I still had a good enough time watching in the theater, and I, apparently they I think it sounds like Creed four is going to be a thing, and he's going to be directing it as well. So we'll see about that. But anyway, that's not the point of what we're talking about now. We're talking about Michael B. Jordan collaborating once again with the director who certainly made him famous and got his start. And that is Ryan Coogler, who they worked together on Fruitvale Station, which was both of their, well, it wasn't Michael B. Jordan's first movie, but it was certainly a movie that got a lot of attention for the two of them for this indie project about <coughs> Oscar Grant, the man who was uh, murdered 
on I forget what like when exactly it was, but in Oakland, California. And um, you know, that was sort of a platform for them to go and then do Creed together, uh, which of course now Michael B. Jordan himself is directing the the endeavors in that franchise. They then went on and did Black Panther and Black Panther Wakanda Forever because Michael B. Jordan did have a cameo in that film. And now they're sort of maybe going back to their roots. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's an indie film, the scale of Fruitvale Station. I think both of these uh, creators, both of these talents have enough juice behind them where maybe they will be independently financing their movie, but it feels almost certain that it will have a big budget and will be financed with a considerable amount of money. So probably something more, but probably something more like the indie in the sense that it's outside of a franchise, but an original work working together again it feels like a really magical pairing. We really don't know very much about this project at all. Uh, to note, the Hollywood Reporter article that broke this exclusive says that secrecy is so tight on this project uh, that is being produced by Kugler and his proximity media that people involved with the project had to go in person to the WME offices, the agency that is rep that reps Kugler, just to read the script. So it's under lock and key. We don't really have any more information at the moment. One thing that during the process of researching this project, Scott, that I learned is that Proximity Media, one of the people who co-founded that company with Ryan Coogler is Sev Ohanian, who is uh, Anish Shiganti's, uh, I guess, like producing partner, like yeah. much like very closely involved with both searching and the sequel missing on the producing side of things. So that's not a name that I'd ever seen pop up before around Kugler, but he did co-found Proximity, which is Kugler's production company with him. And so Sevohanian is producing this next project as well. So that's cool. Fun little fact. Doesn't really matter that much. Scott, how excited are you to see Kugler and Jordan get back together, especially outside of the world of franchises? I mean, Creed was awesome. Original Black Panther was awesome. But I, to me, it's almost it's it's maybe double, triple excited, like triply exciting that they're getting back together to work on some independent project that they're both very passionate about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, secret genre movie, original genre movie, whatever, yeah. you know, sort yeah. of being described as that's, that's an exciting phrase for me because um, I, I think, you know, obviously the, the market there's, there's a dearth of those in the market nowadays. And uh, I would love, you know, if we are just going to continue down this road with franchises being, everything really in the world of, of big ticket movies um i would love um if you know we could we could have these two very talented people working on something original and, and that being sort of the next john wick if you will you know i don't want to get too ahead of myself obviously but um they have the chops i i've enjoyed all of the work that they've done together uh, michael b jordan is one of those people who when you say there's no movie stars nowadays i think he's one of the people that you can use as a rejoinder to that comment um and ryan coogler absolutely has has proven that he has the juice it's definitely time for him to to make another movie so um you know uh, if, as if it wasn't exciting enough you know that we have an original genre um franchise that perhaps is, is on the cards. Um, the fact that it's these two people, um, you know, working on it, it ensures to me that it's probably going to be good. Um, and, and that's exciting. I would expect so. I mean, Kugler, your mileage may vary on Wakanda forever, but I mean, I think Kugler just so clearly has the juice that I, I, 
I'm not going to stray from that perspective until I'm proven until I'm until I'm proven otherwise. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, he definitely has the juice. I'm, I'm with you there. And, you know, you could see that in Black Panther Wakanda forever, which, you know, I think just didn't have the same same juice as uh, Black Panther did. But um, anyway, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton 2013 And I am at Scarby Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, uh, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And of course, we hope that you will be back for our next episode of the podcast in two weeks when we will be revealing our lists for the top 10 films of 2023. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.